Welcome, everyone, to the very first episode of the Reforming Classical Education podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Vieira. Today, I have the privilege of talking with Jacob Ali. Jacob serves as the upper school dean at Caritas Classical Christian Academy, the founder of Study the Great Books, and he also serves as the editor-in-chief and a fellow of classical humanities here at the Beza Institute. Jacob, thanks for joining me today, brother. Hey, Lucas, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm excited to get this podcast kicked off for Beza. Love it. So could you just tell the, our listeners a little bit more about yourself, uh, what you teach, your education, anything you'd like them to know? Sure. I've been actively teaching in classical Christian schools for about a decade now. Before that, I did youth ministry for about a decade also. So my whole adult life and career has been working with teenagers, uh, and I'm thankful that I've been able to do that. Uh, my educational background, I did a bachelor's degree in religion and apologetics from Luther Rice. I did a master's in biblical studies from a school no one's ever heard of called Piedmont International University. <laughs> and uh, I am looking forward to defending my doctoral dissertation, hopefully Thanks in the next it. month or so, from uh, Faulkner University and, and a PhD in humanities, kind of a great books program. Um, Fantastic. So, yeah, but... Great. Tell me, tell me a little bit about your dissertation. What are, you, what are you writing on, or what have you written on that you'll be defending? Yeah, yeah. It's it's nice to be able to have written on, right? In past tense. So <laughs> that's um, right. That's right. My my doctoral dissertation is all about uh, the role stories play in passing on virtue to each generation. Um, so just focusing on, on, well, first of all, what is what is virtue, and how do we uh, lay hold of it and, and how stories can help us do that by giving us vicarious experiences. So mm. by uh, being engrossed in the story, we actually participate in a meaningful way in the events of the story, which means choosing what books you read carefully is really important. Excellent. Excellent. I'm sure we'll talk about that a little bit more um, as, as we go on here. So tell me, how did you get involved with classical Christian education? Yeah, well, well, I was a uh, a youth minister. I was kind of a bivocational youth minister, uh, okay. and I was working for a community college doing recruiting for that community college. And that community college uh, was in Kansas, and so they had a wind energy program they were just really excited about. And so they sent me hmm. to all the high schools all around Kansas to try to get people to come learn about wind turbines. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, was, uh, I was visiting different high schools, and I I looked at my uh, visitation list one day, and I saw a school on there called Care Paravel Latin School. <laughs> and okay. you got to understand that at this point in my life, uh, you know, my my wife and I, we just had a baby, our first child, you know. Um, but I, I, although I love Jesus, I had never read C.S. Lewis. I, I didn't, you know, wow. I know I knew okay. the name, sure. right? Sure. But like, uh, so I didn't know what a Care Paravel was, right? <laughs> and I. I thought I knew what a Latin school was. I thought that the school would be mostly Latinos, right? I <laughs> so, <laughs> okay, okay. So, oh, man. So uh, I go to the school and have my uh, impressions immediately corrected about part of that, at sure. least. You know? and <laughs> as I walk into the hallways, right, I see all of these, like, orderly students walking along, mm. you know, the hallways, only they don't look like drones. They look like smiling, happy kids, mm. you know. And yeah. I see beautiful works of art on the walls and, and incredible projects that students have done. And so I, I set up my little my little table that I, I had to talk to students there, you know. And I really I had, like, one girl in particular who came and she talked to me for a while, and I kind of told her about our program. And, 
And I sure. just listened to her talk for a while, and I, I had this distinct impression. I, I thought to myself, this girl should not come to my school. I should go <laughs> to hers, right? Yeah. <laughs> I, was, <laughs> sure, I was just, sure. like, shocked by this entire wow. experience. And so as I was packing up and leaving from Paraville Latin School in Topeka, Kansas, I went in the office and I said, can I have a packet of information about your school? Wow. And so I came home to my wife and I, I showed her this packet and I said, this is what we're going to do for our kids. And she says, what is it? And I said, I have no idea, but it's amazing. <laughs> wow. That's great. That's fantastic. So you, you saw the fruit of it and you thought to yourself, I want this for my child. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was so yeah. starkly different than my own experience yeah, in high incredible. school, you know, and then anything else I'd ever seen. And, um, yeah, it was just amazing. I was like, I knew sure. this was good instantly. Yeah. So then help me out. What were the steps that kind of got you into the teaching world, into the classical Christian ed world? So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I continued to be in youth ministry, um, for a while, but this, that particular school was over an hour from where we were living at the time. And okay. there wasn't another classical Christian school around. So, uh, you know, I again came to my wife and said, well, this is what we're doing, so we're going to have to homeschool. And of course, at the time, she's like, mm. homeschool? Like, I've never even thought of homeschooling, sure, you know? Sure, sure. And uh, so, but we prayed about it and said, yeah, that's that's what we're going to do. And so we, we looked at uh, different classical curriculums and, you know, all the Memoria Press and, and all the different mm -hmm. ones that are out there. And uh, we just started kind of easing our way into that and figuring that out. And so when, when uh, our oldest son, Titus, started school that's that's what we did so we were homeschooling classically and did that for um oh probably six or seven years um before they started going to one of the schools that uh, i started teaching so i started teaching i was in ministry uh like i said for about 10 years and one of this this crazy thing happened so i was uh southern baptist ordained and sure. uh then the, the senior pastor that I was working with, he and I both became convictionally Presbyterian. Okay, okay. <laughs> so, that was kind of Mr. Toad's wild ride there for a while. The, the whole church sure, actually sure. ended up coming into the OPC, uh, okay, but it was a major transition. But anyway, in, in the midst of that transition, uh, you know, I actually ended up stepping out of pastoral ministry and went and took uh, my first role as a teacher in a classical I see. Okay, so, yeah. excellent. Fantastic. Well, um, I'm sure some of our listeners are familiar with classical Christian education, but some of them might not be. Um, so how would you define classical Christian education? I know that's a big question, right? It's, it's big, but um, what is classical Christian education? Um, I'd love for you to speak to that a little bit. Yeah, so it's, I, you know, whenever you get asked that question, I'm sure you would agree, like, we always want to have some sort of like really succinct, beautifully sure. like crafted <laughs> yeah, answer yep, to yep. that. Mm -hmm. And it's really hard to do that. Uh, because like, you know, in one hand, like, you know, is, is classical Christian education method? Is it curriculum? Mm. Is it an aesthetic experience? And sure. it's kind of all of that. Right. And so I'll, I'll kind of break down maybe those three categories a little bit. Um, so, great. you know, method wise, uh, you know, we talk a lot about the trivium and uh, not as much about the quadrivium. I actually think we should, we should talk about the quadrivium more, which I'll explain those mm -hmm. in a little bit for our audience. But um, so a lot of our classical Christian schools are formed around the idea of the trivium. Uh, so grammar, logic, and rhetoric. So when you think of the set, you heard the term, the seven liberal arts, right? 
there's a lot of colleges out there that call themselves liberal arts colleges, but you could ask any student on the campus, hey, what are the liberal arts? And they'd all stare sure. at you blankly and like, I don't know. Mm-hmm. That. <laughs> so, uh, but the seven liberal arts, right, are grammar, logic, and rhetoric. That's the trivium. And then the quadrivium is arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. And I'll, I'll touch on that more in a little bit. But so the trivium, uh, our schools typically are arranged. The, what, we have the grammar school, which is what a lot of people would call elementary age, right? Uh, where we focus on um, memorization and repetition and and drilling like the the basic information that's needed to go on to kind of higher forms of learning. But we have a lot of fun doing it. We do it with chants. We do it with mm-hmm. song. Um, you know, we we have students that will we have dress up days where they become the characters in the books. I mean, there's all kinds of things and, and just yeah. really engage the imagination and wonder and. And different schools have different emphasis of how they go about doing those things, right? But, but it's just basically the recognition that uh, young children really are sponges of information, um, mm. and so we want to fill them up, you know, with these key foundational skills, pretty much of reading, writing, and arithmetic. I mean, it really those are like the foundational pieces, and we do a lot of other things with that. I mean, we start teaching them um, all kinds of things, and uh, one thing I would actually say is. Although we talk about uh, grammar school, logic school, and rhetoric school, um, I think sometimes there's a misnomer that we have in classical Christian education that says you, well, you have grammar and then you move on from grammar and then you go into logic and then you move on from logic and go to rhetoric. It's not really that. In fact, in grammar school, there are elements of logic or reasoning, elements of of rhetoric and and, and persuasive speaking or or sharing your own thoughts, you know. So it just just takes on different forms as students mature personally and get older and they're able to deal with more abstract thinking and things like that. Um, but regardless, there is kind of a, a, a the developmental stage where, you know, they're just sponges for information. So we capitalize mm-hmm. on that in the grammar yeah. school. And then in the logic school, we, we focus on more abstract thinking, more, uh, you know, doing reasoning. We teach formal logic. Uh, so Aristotelian logic, uh, and again, every school maybe cuts that a little bit differently. At Caritas, we actually do three years of logic. We have seventh, eighth, and ninth grade do that. And okay. uh, they, they do Aristotelian logic, and then they do symbolic logic, and then they do uh, inductive logic in ninth grade. Okay. So, Excellent. Um, and then, you know, rhetoric is, is again, it's the persuasive writing and speaking. And so the, the focus in the latter part of the classical Christian education uh, takes all of those skills uh, that they've learned throughout grammar and learned throughout logic and then pours them into the ability to speak and write in a way to persuade, but persuade for the good. Um, mm-hmm. And so this, and that brings up maybe another thing. We focus a lot on virtue, right? We, we, mm-hmm. we realize that the uh, curriculum that we give these kids, we teach them to be sharp, thinkers, critical thinkers. And I, I almost hate the term critical thinking anymore because people use that and mean something yeah. <laughs> different by it. Sure, sure. But my point is they, we learn, we teach them how to discern truth from folly and how to be able to make really good arguments and destroy bad ones. And so we know that those tools that we give students can be used for evil, right? Uh, like I always mm-hmm. tell students, you know, one of the, one of the greatest speakers in the last hundred years, uh, well, maybe just slightly over that almost now, but is Hitler, right? Mm, uh, sure. He he was a great rhetorician, you know. So virtue is super important. The the rhetorician uh, in ancient Rome, Quintilian, you know, said we, that mm-hmm. we want to have good men speaking well, and that 
and focus on virtue that's is really right. important. Yeah. So I could talk about a lot of things, but like that's sure. you know, again, that's kind of method and a little bit of curriculum. Yeah. We talk about we, classical languages, formal logic, rhetoric, mm-hmm. and again, aesthetic. I think there's just beauty. We're big on beauty um, yeah. from why we have kids are in uniforms, why uh, a lot of our schools insist on cursive writing, why we mm-hmm. look at great pieces of art and just kind of get lost yeah. in it for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and teach kids how to do classical drawing and things like that as well. Indeed. That's great. So could you speak a little bit more to the, the Christian aspect of classical Christian education? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, when we say classical, you know, that, that harkens back to Greece and Rome. Uh, a lot of our schools, most of our schools do teach Latin, the, the Roman mm-hmm. language, right? Some of them actually have Greek as well, or, or you have that option. Um, and of course, we learn all about Roman and Greek civilization, too, and read their mm-hmm. books. You read Homer, we read uh, Plutarch, we read all kinds of things like that. That's right. Um, but the, the Christian aspect comes in with, we take everything and hold it up to the light of Scripture. Um, mm-hmm. So we believe that the, the Bible is the inerrant and inspired and authoritative Word of God, that it is the, uh, the final word on Christian faith and practice. And so one thing about classical Christian schools is um, sometimes, sometimes within Christian circles, there gets to be a tendency where people say, well, we shouldn't even read all that pagan stuff, you know, but, hmm. but we try to take our cue from like what Augustine said in, in On Christian Doctrine, that what we want to do actually is plunder the Egyptians, right? So hmm. he uses that idea that when in Exodus, when uh, the Jews are, are being led out of Egypt by Moses, they take with them all the wealth of Egypt, right? Because all of those good things were really good, right? Um, But they didn't really belong to them, right? They were a gift of of God, right? And so because of God's uh, goodness and common grace to mankind, you know, even even the pagans of old stumbled upon truth, just like in Acts 17, Paul says that they could, right? They can stumble and feel their way, right? So they land on things that are actually true, that are actually good, that are actually beautiful, but it's up for us as Christians to be able to kind of surgically come in with the Word of God and say, this part right here is beautiful. This part right here is true. This part right here is good. And we should lay claim to it and believe it and hold on to it. But we should extricate it from this other idea that clearly is godless, clearly is, is counter to the truth. And so we let our Christianity uh, affect everything we do and read. And I would even say that um, the our understanding of the seven liberal arts is is foundationally informed primarily by the the Middle Ages, right? So the high Middle Ages and their formation. Sure. So like Thomas Aquinas and other thinkers like that, uh, the way they thought through all of this, they put it in kind of a nice little bow. And so our version of classical education, although hearkening back to ancient Greece and Rome, is is deeply informed by Christian convictions and a kind of Christian view of the world that you know God made and ordered all things. And that's why truth is knowable and discoverable. Um, and so that's, that's kind of everything. Amen. Amen. That's excellent. Well, you founded an organization called study the great books. Um, yeah. just tell our listeners a little bit about that. What, what do you do over at study the great books? What's your, what's your mission? What's your goal? Um, there. <laughs> so I, uh, I, people who sign up for, for newsletters from study the great books, uh, will be annoyed to receive all kinds of things from me. Right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> It proves too much for some, but I, you know, when I, I have a, a major objective and then I kind of have some side projects going on that I sure. put on there as well, because yeah. 
I want to be a renaissance man, so I kind of try to have my fingers in a lot of things. I love it. Uh, but the, the main project, right, is I'm, I'm in the process of creating a 7th through 12th grade fully integrated humanities curriculum. So hmm. uh, a history, literature, logic, rhetoric, and, and composition through the program in Osmada. And, um, and so it's a, it's a long-term project that's really just kind of underway. Uh, right. but, but by God's grace, it's, it's come along well. And I've been blessed to hear other people are blessed there too. Um, but I also am having fun. I'm kind of serial publishing like here and there chapters of some novels that I'm writing and mm-hmm. I might write a poet poem or something. And I might, uh, I definitely writing articles periodically on classical Christian education. Um, just, just kind of a myriad of things. So if, if you like, right. uh, if you don't mind getting a mix of things and you don't mind somebody lighting up your inbox at least five <laughs> or six times a week, then please come sign up for study the great I books. love it. Well, it's, it's great content on brother and it's on their brother. And it's blessed me a lot. Um, now in classical Christian circles, we hear that term great books a lot, right? Yeah. We, we read the great books in the classical Christian school. Um, so what do we mean when we say the great books? Uh, what, what, what does a classical educator mean there? Yeah, yeah. So when we say great books, um, I mean, one, one place we can go to think about that is, of course, uh, Mortimer Adler. Mortimer Adler mm-hmm. was uh, a great thinker in mind. He really pushed hard to um, revitalize education in America by, by pushing people towards the liberal arts and the great books in particular. Uh, he actually helped edit a complete series uh the original came out in 1954 and there was kind of a revamped version in 1990 called the great books of the western world um and that 1990 version has it's a 60 volume set and it takes you everywhere from homer uh to the some some early uh 20th century writers you know and one of the things that when we say great books what do we mean by that we mean books that have lasted or we very much believe will last the test of time. Um, and so when you have a book in your hands like Homer or Aeschylus or uh, Dante or Shakespeare or whatever it may be, right? This is something that for centuries, if not millennia, people have said, this is so good. I have to make sure the next generation reads this. Mm. And so it's been preserved and handed down. Yeah. Um, so they, they're kind of on a, pre, uh, a pre-qualified list, right? Just by the, the nature that sure, they have been sure. so well-loved and so well-preserved and passed down. You say, that's worth my time. Like anything that's published today, it's not that there's not good books being published today, but there's plenty of junk being published today too. And so you can, you can take a shot on something new, but you might end up being wasting your time or or read something that was actually already said better by someone in the past or, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and so I'm not down on, on, on new literature, especially somebody who, who is writing things himself, you know? Um, but I like C.S. Lewis in his, um, in his essay on old books, he talks about this. And this is actually the introduction to Athanasius's on the incarnation where he talks about this. Um, but he recommends, you know, that we read, uh, you know, Three books, I think he says, every one new one, or if you can't handle that, just do at least one and one, you know, back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and he makes some points about reading great old books. Um, and he, he tells us that the old books have a way of helping uh, us correct problems in our own day. 
because they don't struggle in those eras necessarily with the same things that we are currently sure. struggling That's with. Right. Yeah. So they they allow us to see through some of our problems by by getting a kind of a fresh sea breeze air from a different time, a different generation. Mm-hmm. And vice versa, we're able to see clearly the wrongs of the past sometimes uh, that we don't struggle with today, you know. And so it, it's kind of a quid pro quo relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, uh, we're able to, to have a better view of the world by seeing how other times and even places in the world have looked at the same issues. And that's I think that's the other aspect of this, too, is that these great books, the reason that they have been passed on from generation to generation is because they are addressing issues of universal human interest. So even though you say, well, what in the world, like, what do I as an American in this day and age, the internet age, you know, what in the world do I have in common with somebody like Aeschylus? Or what do I have in common with, you know, some North African churchman or like, what, do I, you know, <laughs> like it just seems so foreign. Surely there's nothing we could talk mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. that we would, that we would have in common. And yet the truth is, is they're talking about the same things that we all care about right now. They're talking That's about right. like, why am I here? What is my purpose? Like, what does it mean to know something? Like what is truth? Um, you know, I mean, just, just all kinds of things that we find ourselves wondering in those same questions right now. And so the great books, we also call the great conversation, right? Hmm. And the more you read in the great books, you realize that not only are you entering into a conversation with past great minds uh, about things that you're interested in right now, but you're actually seeing that they're talking to and about each other. There's a thread through these books where they are aware of one another, right? And so they are relating with what has been said before and pushing that conversation further on, which is why in modern education, the fact that so many schools and so many students never read a book that's older than 20 or 30 years, Mm. um, they have divorced themselves from humanity. That's right. That's right. And and so, uh, you know, not even 100 years ago, you could not have called yourself educated if you haven't mm. read Homer or Plato or Shakespeare, you know, or Augustine. Um, and now that's almost universally the case. Uh, you know, Jeremy Tate, who's head of the CLT, made this point to the day. You know, he said that uh, there are people in our day and age who have gone from kindergarten to PhD who have never read a book more than 50 years old. Well, and that just yeah. shouldn't be. It just shouldn't be. That's right. That's right. You know, there's there's this vast inheritance that's being taken away, you know, from, from it's our actually students, right. from our children. It's a treasure. It's a treasure. That's right. That's and right. it's, it's uh, that's exactly being squandered. It. It's, it's, cutting, it's cutting people off, cutting their legs off and saying, you don't get to know who you are. You don't get to know mm. where you came from. You don't get mm-hmm. to know why the United States is what it is, why it was founded the way it was. You don't get to know your own personal heritage as a people, right? Mm. Um, it's, it's a travesty. Mm. Indeed. And again, the Western civilization is is something so much greater than just our now, but we are the next chapter in that conversation. But how, right. what, what's the point of writing a chapter when you didn't read the, the 50 mm-hmm. that came before it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then that's, you know, part of part of our vision um, as classical Christian educators, right? We want to we want to introduce our students to that great conversation, allow them to step into that conversation um, and. 
and see the treasure and behold the treasure that's that's available for them. Um, so, you know, for for teachers, for new teachers, for homeschooling parents who are new to classical Christian education, um, you know, do you have any tips for how they should go about teaching the great books? How, how they should go about introducing students to this great conversation that we've been discussing together? Yeah, yeah, I think I can offer a few thoughts anyway. Um, so we talked about the trivium already. Um, and so, you know, everything in the trivium and also grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Grammar is its own subject and discipline, logic is its own subject, discipline, and rhetoric, so on and so forth. But you can also use those to help you think about categories. So everything hmm. you learn has a grammar to it, has its basic information, the things that have to be really known and kind of wrote, memorized to, to be able to understand what you're dealing with. Logic, everything has a rationale, has reason to it, has relationships. And you want to learn to think about the pieces separately and how they relate to one another. And then rhetoric, everything you learn has an expression, right? Has a mm -hmm. way of speaking about that thing and speaking well about that thing articulately. And so, you know, even even math has grammar, right? Um, even um, sure. even history has logic, right? So it just doesn't matter what you're studying. You can kind of think about those terms, like what is the base information? What is the what is the relationship of all this information? How do I think about um, how it fits together? And then how do I talk about it? Hmm. And you can actually use the trivium to form questions. So you can use the trivium as a model for question asking. Uh, and, and so when you're reading a great book and you start with grammar questions, you say, well, just what does it say? And that's the first and foremost thing. And, and it's the same. Right. I, if we could get people in evangelical Bible studies to figure this out too, that'd be really great, right? <laughs> sure, sure. How many times have you been to a <laughs> small right. group and, and somebody's like, yeah. what does this verse mean to you? <laughs> and I'm always like, I don't really care what it means to you. <laughs> sure. Especially I not know what it means. tell me what it that's right. says at all. Like, what does <laughs> that's it right. say, that's right. you know? And, uh, so, you know, our first step in reading a great book of me sort is just like, what is the message? Like, what is it saying? Who is it um, that's speaking? Who's being spoken to? What are the people doing? You know, just like, what is actually happening? Can you regurgitate what you just took in, kind of reform it, right? So even some of the, the composition exercises we do as classical educators, right, focus on just like, can you actually boil this down to the essentials and reassemble the basic message mm -hmm. here in your that's own right. words, you know, and that's that's something that we just think is super important because if you don't have the basic understanding first and foremost, just just what got said, then you can't move on to anything else, or you shouldn't move on to anything else, right? So, so parents or, or educators in schools, you know, just think about grammar in in anything you're doing as the information. And do I have the basic information down? I can ask simple questions with kind of a one to one correspondence. So, if I ask a grammar question there should be a direct answer in the text, right? It doesn't, you don't need to reason through it. You don't need, you just need to find it, right? Like that's it, sure. right? Um, logic questions. Logic questions is that kind of interpretive or comparative analysis, right? So why did this person say that? Or why did that character do that thing? How does this part of the story or the, the speech or whatever it may be relate to something that was done or said earlier? Are they, are they antithetical to one another? Are they complementary to one another? How do we think about those relationships between them? Um, and, and this allows uh, students to begin to use their cognitive abilities. So it's not as direct of an, a one-to-one -one relationship as grammar questions, where here's the question, here's the answer, because it's right through the text. Now it's like, okay, 
the text is leading me, but I have to kind of take that extra step and say, all right, this is why I think this is happening, or this is how I think they relate to one another, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then rhetoric questions. This is where you, you kind of extract the great ideas from the text, and you kind of think about them in a little more abstract setting and say, okay, clearly in this thing we've been reading, like slavery is a big deal, right? Like mm-hmm. we see uh, maybe you're, you know, reading Philemon in the Bible, or maybe you're reading uh, uh Plato talking to Mino and he's got a slave boy or whatever you may be doing. How should we think of slavery as Christians? We see slavery Hmm. in the scripture too. Is slavery always bad? Are there different kinds of slavery? So you take an idea that you're wrestling with in the text, you kind of pull it out of the text and start examining it and thinking about all the different angles of it. So you allow the text to bring it up, but um, you, you don't, you can necessarily kind of, not divorced from the text, but you kind of just allow it to be thought of as the idea itself that's presented Mm -hmm. in the text, right? Mm -hmm. And there's different ways to do that, too. Um, And and a lot of times rhetoric questions become great prompts for essays or speeches, things like that as well. That's great. And then I'd like to also just say, like, theological analysis type questions. How does the Bible come to bear on Mm. the subjects, the ideas that we have read in this, this lesson today, right? Because... You know, the scripture speaks to everything that matters for Christian faith and practice, right? That's right. It doesn't teach us how to change the oil in our car. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't teach us how to do uh, things like that. So nobody is trying to say that the the Bible is sufficient for, you know, how to uh, reset your computer and get rid of that virus or anything like that, you know. (laughs) Uh, But when it comes to how do I live with God and with men, right, Hmm. it has every answer we need. And that's what the, those are the most interesting conversations and questions in the great books is how do I live with God and with man? It's true. And so we, we always want to bring the Bible to bear on everything we do. Um, and so we would, we would be re- really be doing a disservice to our students if we didn't do that. And I actually like to do that last because the scripture mm. is the judge. That's so fine. you've kind of that's gone great. through this whole process, yeah, right? You've thought through it carefully. What's being said? How's it all fit together? What do I think about it? what does scripture have to say to me? How is it going to correct my thinking? How is it going to, you know what I mean? Like just let it be preside over the whole thing. That's great. That's fantastic. Well, That's, let that, me say that, one other thing. Just, just, yeah, just, go just, for it. just yeah. to, um, when it kind of, especially home, I'm going to say especially to homeschool parents, but, but, but mm-hmm. to everybody, right? Even teachers that are in a classical school, um, cut yourself a break, mm. right? Like, so like there's a high pressure, I think, especially when people like find classical Christian education, they're like, Oh, this is just amazing thing. And I want my kids to have all of it, you know, sure, and you get super sure. stoked. And then you also get super overwhelmed and feel like it's bigger mm. than you. And it is bigger than you. Right. That's right. And, uh, you could kind of make it this like miserable experience because you're not mm. doing it well enough or your, your kids aren't trying hard enough and you're trying to shove them through like the entire you know, 60 volume great books of the Western world set in, <laughs> yeah, in seventh yeah, yeah. grade, you know? <laughs> and uh, so my, one of my primary advice, right, is calm down, like hmm. love it and get like, like make sure your students love it. It would be more yeah. important and far better if you get students leaving, having read less overall than you might've wanted them to, but have them saying, you mean that guy wrote more? That's right. I could yeah. read. I could read another mm-hmm. book by him. Yeah. Right. You That's know, right. and 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 have them have that desire in their heart 
Hmm. So you don't have to get to everything. You don't have to get to everything, right? So we, Plato says that uh, true education is about the ordering of affections, it's teaching hmm. students to love what they ought to love and hate what they ought to hate, which is why discussions on virtue and vice and modeling a great love for whatever we're teaching and also not loading so much upon our students that they go when they graduate, I don't ever want to see a book again, mm, right? Like, and I've, right. I've yeah. heard that, unfortunately, sure. I've heard that in certain context, you know? And so I, I very much advocate a less is more approach on a lot of mm. things. Um, That's good. So, yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's very helpful to think of that, you know, that way we're, we're, we are opening the door for the great conversation for our students, right? We're, a lifelong there's no, thing. There's no, that's right. It's a lifelong journey where it's, it's not as if we're fooling ourselves, we're kidding ourselves if we think, oh, I can bring them through the, entire, the, the entirety of Western civilization and thought and every single book. Um, we're, we're just kidding ourselves. And what we really can do is lay the foundation, open the door, um, you know, give our students as you're saying, just rightly ordered loves, help, help them see the value and the beauty of it so that they pursue it for their whole life. Um, really great thoughts. Yeah. Any, anything yeah. else on, on teaching the great books, um, tips, advice? Yeah, you know, I mean, things like I said I would suggest is uh, commonplacing is really a great practice. Mm, okay. So if you're not great. familiar with that or if someone's not familiar with that, this is basically just getting a journal and um, finding nuggets of gold in the great books mm. that you record and, and put down in your commonplace. Uh, so you, and, and the way that I go about this with my students uh, is we, I've given them a list of the seven virtues, the seven like main virtues of so the cardinal and the theological virtues. So, great. Uh, you know, prudence, uh, fortitude, justice, temperance, and then faith, hope, and love. And I, I define those for them. We use the Aristotelian mean. So Aristotle defines a virtue as a kind of a median between two vices. And so we, we contemplate what are the ditches on both sides of virtues. Um, so the really simple one to think about is, is courage, right? You can you have reckless behavior that some people would call courage, but it's actually just foolish sure. running into danger, you know, or cowardice, you know. So courage is that mean between the two. And, and each one of the virtues you can walk down and say, well, what would be the what would be the both sides of faith hmm. or hope or love or temperance, right? You know, all of these things. And so kids really actually enjoy that conversation. But so we use those. And then we also use um, the great ideas. Hmm. And there's like, there's no perfect list of great ideas. Uh, I'm always open to students. And I think this is a, a great idea, even if it's not on my list necessarily. Uh, but this is things like light versus darkness. Um, the idea of home, uh, Tolkien crafted a word called uh, eucatastrophe, hmm. which means being able to give thanks after going through something very difficult, right? Um, and, and there's just all these, these different things. Um, and so we, we kind of have these virtues and vices and great ideas on our mind as we're reading the great books. And so I actually have my students, if they see a virtue, they're to raise their hand and say, huzzah! <laughs> And and uh, I, I say, great, what did you find? And they tell me, right? Or if they see a, an example of a vice, they can say, boo, <laughs> boo, you know? And um, like, great, what vice did you find? Or uh, if they see a great idea, they raise their hand and say, like, light bulb, you know? I say, oh, what's the idea? What's, what's the idea, right? Yeah. And so they, they, 
it really ends up being fun. Like it's a fun experience and they see things that I don't see, which mm, is actually really right. cool. Right. Sure, so sure. I pre-read all these things. I'm marking up my books, you know, um, and they continue to find things that will just escape me in my own reading. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I benefit from them and they benefit from me. And it's, and that's, that's a beautiful thing too. I think about, in my opinion, at least about how classical educators yeah. should see themselves good. as tutors, as mentors, mm-hmm. but like, not, not, I'm not saying we're equals. I mean, we, we are, we are leading these students, you know, we're shepherds, we're guides, however you want to look at it. Right. But, but we're also like co-lovers of these great ideas and great books with them. Right. right. So we're, we're continuing the same journey that we're helping them start and go further down. And so I think when they get a sense that you're learning with them and that you can you can be man enough to be like I totally didn't see that and you did that's right, right. you know yes. <laughs> like, yes that's a good that's uh-huh. a good thing to do right <laughs> you know to just admit that and um, anyway so yeah we use those great ideas virtues and vices and when we see excellent examples of them uh, every Friday in my class we take time and we pull out our commonplace notebook and they just transfer down some of the best ones from that mm. week's reading into this notebook that's a great idea and over time that becomes just a a treasure trove mm. of great quotes yeah. Uh, it reminds them of the things they've read. It reminds them of the best of the things they've read. And it also actually becomes a resource, uh, especially after doing it for a few years, of like essay prompt ideas, wow. right? You yeah. can go in there or, or use it to sure. to fill in a great quote in something you write. Maybe you're doing a CREA or something like that, which is one of the program exercises. But um, so, yeah, that's a great practice. Um, I advocate also having a system of to annotate. Uh, to annotate. So I, I'm, a, I'm a huge believer of writing your mm. books, right? So at our school at Caritas, we have books built into the tuition. Um, so that way, every year, yeah, students great. get all their books and they're theirs to keep. Um, so they can write all over them and mark them all up. You know, I've been in other schools, uh, you know, who didn't do it that way. They had parents buy the books. So you, you inevitably had like, well, I can't mess this book up because I got to give it to my little brother and my little sister after him. <laughs> you know sure. what I mean? And, and I get that. I get, I get trying to conserve money. I totally understand that. Uh, but that's why we do it the way we do because like we want students to get the fullness out of the book. Yeah. They each get their own book. And so, you know, they, they use a system that I, I made and, and there's, there's a lot of systems out there. Like there's a lot of good systems mm-hmm. out there. Like, so totally. it's not, it doesn't have to be mine, you know, but, um, Adler has a book called how to read a book, right? Which is a fantastic book. Um, but you know, we use, uh, blue to underline new people or characters as we're reading. We use red to mark out key terms or vocabulary that may be unfamiliar. Uh, we use green to note, uh, time passing or events. Uh, we use purple for places and and then black is just kind of our general underliner and marginal note taker. And, uh, again, writing those virtues and vices and ideas in the margins, or I really encourage students. I say, like, as much as you can have a conversation with your book, the better. Mm. Like, and, and I don't, I, I kind of don't. I mean, be virtuous, but I don't really care what you say That's in your right. margin almost, sure. right? You know, like you can go, that was hilarious, or you can say that was the dumbest thing I've ever mm-hmm. read about mm-hmm. someone doing. You know, or, or I mean, you know, I like. But the more you interact with the book, or you just say that is an awesome idea. I want to use that in my paper later or mm-hmm. anything. The more you do that, like when you flip back through your book and have it annotated and marked up like that, you instantly remember, Oh, I remember what's there. I know what's there. I remember that. Right. And you can find things easily. And like when you mark a new character, a person 
only the first time they enter the story or enter the the narrative or whatever it may be, it's really easy to find when they entered, mm. right? So it kind of gives you chronology in yeah. your book if you mark it systematically like that, uh, which can be really helpful when you're reading things like Herodotus or like a big <laughs> history book, Indeed, you know, yeah, like definitely. when did, you know, when did uh, King Crayon, which is not like a, a crayon like you draw with, but you know, King Crayon, <laughs> when did he enter in the story, you know? And so um, anyway, yeah, I mean, that's, I guess those are the, that's the a thoughts great idea. that come to mind, but yeah. just, just dig in. Excellent. Well, before we, we wrap up our time here, I'd love to hear, um, just tell me one of your favorite books. I'll ask you one of your favorite books um, that you enjoy studying with students. I'd be curious to hear. It's, it's like the most painful I question know, you ask I know, me. I know. It, no, it really is. I, so I am, I'm notoriously bad about this. And like, you could ask any of my students and they would, they would know exactly what to say. They'll say, you know, uh, what is Mr. Ali's favorite book? And they're like, whatever he's teaching us uh, right that's now. That's right. That's awesome. I love that. <laughs> I mean, it really, I, I, I don't think that's fake. Like, yeah. That's how I feel about that. That's awesome. Like, I just, but it, it helps, though, that at my school, I got to curate and handpick the list of what we read. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it goes together. So I picked only the good ones, right? Yeah. Um, gosh. If you're going to make me pick one, uh-huh. I'm going to go with Beowulf. Wow. Okay. Why Beowulf? I, 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 I I absolutely love Beowulf. So one of the things that I love about Beowulf is because I think um, a lot of people who, who even have read it have missed what happens there. Hmm. So Beowulf is, in my opinion, one of the finest works of Christian imagination hmm. in the Middle Ages. So Beowulf is written, and they debate this a little bit, anywhere from 800 to 1100 A.D., uh, I think it's probably around 1000 AD, but it was written in England. So it's, it's you know, during the time that England is is significantly Christianized, right? Um, but I would argue that Beowulf is a kind of work of cultural apologetics. That's hmm. a term that they wouldn't have known, but we would use today. Um, so if you... If you dig into Beowulf, what you'll start seeing uh, is some interesting things. You'll see a lot of Old Testament references mm-hmm. and allusions. So, for instance, the the great monster of the book, Grendel, right, that everybody uh, loves to think about, he is a descendant of Cain. So Cain's clan, right, after the murder of Abel, has descended into depravity to the extent that they're no longer human. They are ogres and monsters and trolls and all kinds of stuff, right? So that's kind of an interesting idea. There's a, there's uh, references and allusions to the Great Flood, Noah's Flood, right? Um, kind of the Nephilim and stuff like that. So there's, there's always really interesting Old Testament yeah, references. That's great. But, but what's really weird is there are no direct New Testament references. Mm. And now you say, well, why in the world is that, right? I mean, this is written in, in Christianized England. Clearly, the author's familiar with Scripture. Why is he not directly citing, like, New Testament events? Why does he never talk about Jesus when he's talking about all the other things, you know? And the reason for that is because Beowulf himself is a type of Christ. Hmm. So when Beowulf appears on the scene, he slays the monsters. He eventually ascends to the throne. And, lay, and he brings peace to his people, right? Uh, there's been all these blood feuds in the story, and he brings peace to his people. And towards the end of his life, uh, a, a betrayer raises, raises the fury of the dragon. This is very um, Hobbit, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
somebody stole a cup from the dragon's lair and, and the, the dragon comes out and is just burning up everybody. And so Beowulf, as an old man, has to kind of go back into action and fight one last fight. So here's the deal. So Beowulf heads towards the dragon with 11 of his men. On his way, he finds the 12th one who stole the cup, the betrayer. And as he goes in to actually fight the dragon, all of his men abandon him except for one stands by his side hmm. as he fights the dragon. Wow. And he slays the dragon and gives his life in doing so. So if you're not seeing yeah, yeah. <laughs> at this point, right? That's right. The, the Christian uh, idea here, hmm. right? But here's the thing. Beowulf does die. He dies saving his people from the dragon. But after that, the people go back to their blood feuds. Hmm. And so what is the wow. Beowulf poet saying? He's saying that the people need a greater Beowulf. Wow. And I just That's absolutely awesome. love that. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. Well, that makes sense why you just told me Beowulf was your favorite. That's excellent. <laughs> when you go through that with, their, with your students, how do, how, do they, how do they react when you hit that at the very end? Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty revelatory. And, yeah. and they, they get a kick out of it, man. I love they it. Do. Yeah. I love it. I mean, it's a fantastic. I mean, it's one, you know, I mean, you get the boys right away, right? Like, That's oh, right. You're, you're tearing off arms of sure, monsters sure. and all kinds of, you know, like, you know. Um, yeah. But, but everybody ends up enjoying it by the end because it's just such a deeply hmm. powerful symbol of Christ. Wow. Uh, wow. So. Well, that's fantastic. Well, Jacob, thank you for joining me today, talking through classical Christian education and the great books. Uh, I'm sure we'll talk again soon, but thank you, brother. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Reforming Classical Education podcast from the Beza Institute. The Beza Institute for Reformed Classical Education seeks to promote classical Christian education from a distinctly Reformed perspective for the glory of God and the good of His kingdom. To learn more about what we do, visit our website at bezainstitute.org.